Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Welcome back to another episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and you must think I'm crazy now to have put out three episodes of this show in the last 30 days. I know, that's like a quarter of the show's output for the entire year just since Thanksgiving. And there's a reason for that accelerated pace. I am barreling toward the end of a particular finish line for this podcast. But I will explain more about that at the end of this episode after I do your listener feedback. But that is jumping way ahead of myself. The subject for this episode is the first four issues of Supergirl's self-titled series that ran in 1972 and 73. The Princess of Prestidigitation starred in backup strips of Supergirl 1 through 4. I wanted to do something different for this episode, meaning I wanted to review not just the Zatanna stories, but the lead feature starring Supergirl too. And if you're reviewing four issues of Supergirl, you're a fool not to invite Dr. Ange of the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary onto your show. The problem is, scheduling guests has been kind of a pain for me lately, so I took a page out of the Fighting Sutherland's book over at Warlord Worlds. Instead of Ange and I reviewing these books together, I would just give him the forum to review the Supergirl stories on his own, then I'll do the Zatanna story separately. So, on this episode, you will hear us both, but not actually interacting because we didn't record together. This is just an experiment. I truthfully don't know how it'll go. It might suck. If it does, well, I probably won't do it again. Believe me, I can already tell you Dr. Ainge will be back for the next two episodes of this podcast, and those we will record together when the time comes. Right now, I'm going to take a promo break, and after that, Ange will tell you the stories of the Maid of Might and I'll talk about the Maid of Magic. Stick around. Hello, this is Al Sedano for Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Our two-month hiatus will be over soon, and new episodes will return on November 6th. Brian Zeno and Chris Matthews will be here as we cover the final chapters of Thanos' War for the Cosmic Cube. If you miss John M. Wilson, don't worry. He'll be here next year as we get to Adam Warlock's death and rebirth in the pages of The Incredible Hulk, as well as the very subtle, sorry, allegories contained in those pages. So use iTunes or your favorite podcatcher to search for Adam Warlock or Thanos and listen along every two weeks. You can also follow us at our home at resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. Hello, Zatanna fans. It's Dr. Ange from the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary blog. And I know you're expecting to hear the power of fishnets right now, but instead we'll be jumping into a segment of something I called Hala for Hot Pants, my reviews of the Supergirl stories from her self-titled book from 1972. Like most mod groovy hunks from the 1970s, I love hot pants, and Ryan invited me to co-opt some of his show's time to review the Supergirl stories in issues where there is a Zatanna backup feature that he'll be covering. Now just for some background, this Supergirl series... Her first self-titled solo book was a direct follow-up from her run as the headliner in Adventure Comics, and this title only lasted a short ten issues. As was the huge back then, it was a soft reboot of the Supergirl character. So while in Adventure, 
She was a college graduate working in a mobile news team here in Supergirl No. 1, the book I'm reviewing. She is back to being a student, this time a drama major at Van Dyer University. The cover for Supergirl No. 1 has Supergirl being battered by a steam shovel with the tagline, Supergirl battles a laughing killer forever beyond the reach of justice in Trail of the Madman. The story inside, written by the creative team of Carrie Bates, and art by Art Saf and Vince Coletta, starts with Supergirl flying to campus and moving into her dorm on Vandar University, the Delta Zan House. She is thrilled to finally pursue her real ambitions at last of being an actress. Inside, she meets dorm mother Mama Rosie, and in her room, Linda Danvers sees some unearthly objects that belong to her then-unseen roommate, someone named Wanda Five. While walking the campus as Linda Danvers, Linda stumbles onto a murder on stage. Famous ex-stage actor Boris Rasloff, who is now head of the acting department, discovers that his leading man has collapsed dead in the middle of a rehearsal. As she approaches the scene, Linda sees a blonde girl rush by. She turns out later to be Wanda Five. Later, Supergirl is then compelled to fly to a graveyard where Wanda says that she has ESP. She knew the actor was going to die and then ran to that rehearsal to try to stop it. And now Wanda has sensed some vibes that other actors are in danger. Indeed, the two stumble onto another campus-leading man who has died from a coronary when he was tied to a log being dragged into a buzzsaw. It's something very much out of an old silent film. It turns out that the saw was merely a stage prop, but the actor had a heart condition which killed him. Later, the two discover that the first actor died when he was using grease paint that he was allergic to and suffered anaphylactic shock. Using her ESP, Wanda deduces where the next actor will be killed. At a construction site, Basil Razlov is about to drop a student from a crane onto the ground below, thus killing that student. It turns out that Rasloff is enraged that others would play the roles that he made famous on stage. But as he is simply an elderly man using a construction vehicle as a weapon, he is no match for the maid of might. She uses her super breath to basically inhale all of the oxygen out of that vehicle, thus rendering him unconscious. That night, Linda heads back to her dorm room where she officially meets Wanda, this time in her secret identity. And she also meets her other roommates, an Asian woman named Sheila Wong and an African-American named Terry Blake. Okay, this really isn't the best Supergirl story. It is a mystery, and the killer is an old guy. This could easily be a Batgirl story or even a Black Canary story. But the issue does set up this title. Linda is in a new setting as a student, and that's a role that I think the character really thrives in. Wanda Five as someone with ESP who has, you know, extraterrestrial decorations on her side of the dorm room is an interesting character. And we have a culturally diverse supporting cast. But the big draw here is the art, which is just delicious. Art Saf drew a gorgeous Supergirl, kind of a va-va-va-voom incarnation, a very curvaceous young girl wearing that halter top and those hot pants and ballet slippers. Definitely the big draw. But as we'll see, unfortunately, none of the setup that we saw in this title really pans out. Instead, we get a number of basically nondescript stories. But more on those soon. Back to you, Ryan. 
The backup story featuring Zatanna is titled Castle in the Clouds. It's written by Len Wein and Marv Wolfman, with pencils by John Rosenberger and inks by Dick Giordano. The saucy sorceress sits cross-legged on the floor of her home, Shadowcrest, when her manager, Jeffrey Sloan, comes in. Jeff is so excited that he booked her a gig performing magic for a children's hospital that he fails to notice A. Zatanna is in a trance of some kind, and B. She's opened a time portal right in front of her. Somehow, Jeff stumbles and falls through the time portal, landing in medieval England. Two knights on horseback see him and assume that Jeff is some kind of dark wizard or sorcerer that must be put to death immediately. He runs to a nearby village, taking refuge in the nearest cottage he can find. He bolts the door, thinking that by the time the knights burst through, he'll have found a different way to get home. But the knights don't bother busting the door down. They just set the cottage on fire and ride away. Back in Shadowcrest Manor, Zatanna senses Jeff's imminent danger and snaps out of her trance. She casts a spell that teleports her to Jeff's location, arriving right outside the burning cottage. She casts another spell, summoning a giant sprinkling can that douses the flames. Once inside the cottage, however, Zatanna sees no sign of Jeff and fears that she acted too late, that he may be dead. He's not dead, of course. In fact, he's right below her, having discovered a secret trap door leading into a basement lab beneath the cottage. While he's snooping around, he's ambushed by a dozen monsters of every stripe. Vampires, werewolves, demons, ghouls, grim reapers. Zatanna hears Jeff screaming through the floorboards and goes to him. With her quick thinking, and even quicker backwards talking, she defends herself and Jeff from the monsters by trapping them in test tubes, or hitting them with magical baseball bats, or finally sucking them all up with a magical vacuum cleaner. Zatanna and Jeff step through the time portal and return safely to their time and Shadowcrest. Zatanna explains that the portal sent Jeff back to the time of King Arthur, that the two knights who almost killed him were Sirs Lancelot and Gawain of legend, that the village he ran to was outside of Camelot, and that the cottage he hid inside, with its spooky lab in the basement, belonged to none other than Merlin the Magnificent. I guess when you're a magician like Zatanna, there's more interactive ways to study wizards of the past. Okay, my thoughts on this story. First, I didn't read it aloud exactly in my synopsis, but the best part of this story is the caption on page 4 that refers to Zatanna as the saucy sorceress. Um, yeah, the saucy sorceress? I'm going to refer to her that way all the time now. Thanks, Marv Wolfman. Since you're new to writing this character, and I've never heard that descriptor before, I'm going to assume you came up with that one. Good. I love it. Next, the knights who we eventually learn are Sir Lancelot and Sir Gawain. That's kind of incidental. For the most part, they're just two secondary bad guys in a short story. There's nothing really to think hard about. Except, I love the fact that they chase Jeff Sloan to a cottage, and when he locks himself inside, they just set fire to it and leave. There's an economy of action to that that I find really amusing in an adventure story. Too often, we get bad guys acting stupidly because we have to make sure that he's dead, you know? We have to see a body. No, Arthur's knights are like, just trap him in and burn the place down. We've got other stuff to do. So, what of the main character in this? Well, she's fine. I mean, Jeff gets more to do in the front end of this six-and-a-half-page story, but Zatanna comes in and saves his butt a couple of times. Her use of magic is pretty simple, just creating objects for weapons like a Green Lantern would, but it's visually interesting with a variety of objects. That helps. John Rosenberger's art is fine. I think Dick Giordano probably helps smooth out some of it, 
but it's not as captivating as Giordano's solo work and certainly not as good as what we got from Grey Morrow back in the last episode and in those adventure comic stories. But anyway, that puts an end to the stories in Supergirl issue one. Let's go to the next book and hear what Dr. Ange has to say about the lead story. Take it away, Doc. And we're back to hoot it up for hot pants as I review Supergirl number two, which is cover dated January 1973. I'm going to start out by saying this issue is crazy. On the cover, a worried Supergirl is holding up the bottled city of Kandor, and inside that bottle, a man in a three-piece suit is larger than the city and pressed against the bottle edges, screaming, Supergirl, yank me out. Supergirl responds, Alan is growing so fast. Unless I pull him out, he'll shatter the bottle city of Kandor, killing my parents and everyone inside. A text box on the cover calls this a super stunner, Death of a City. Death of a City had the same creative team as Supergirl number one, Carrie Bates writing, with Art Saff and Vince Coletta on art. The story starts with Linda on the beach in a pink bikini getting hit on by a boy named Jeff. Jeff uses the line, Linda, every time I look at you, you send me into orbit. Before Jeff can use any more bad pickup lines, Linda notices some danger in the ocean. Her biology professor, Dr. Forsythe, is being pulled down under the water by two huge octopi and a giant manta. I'm talking gargantuan versions of these creatures. How far out in the ocean was he? Switching to Supergirl, our hero bashes the underwater creatures and brings the professor to the surface where, now back as Linda, she performs mouth-to-mouth to resuscitate him. The bohunk Jeff stumbles on this and only sees Linda kissing her professor and thinks she is stepping out on him. He walks off in a huff. You guys better be ready for this sort of romantic nonsense throughout all of these reviews. The professor once again faints, and Linda brings him back to his lab, where he shows that he is obsessed with trying to cure sickle cell anemia. He doesn't worry that he almost died. He says he needs to get back to research, because sickle cell anemia never takes a vacation, and every moment counts until a cure is found and this killer is beaten. He really is obsessed. Leaving the professor's apartment, Linda once again runs into Jeff. This feeds into Jeff's thoughts that she is sleeping with this professor, and Jeff storms off again in a huff. That night, as Supergirl, she checks in on the professor to see him passed out at his desk. Snooping around, she sees evidence that he is dying of a rare and incurable brain malady. He awakens and says that he isn't getting treatment because he fears it will keep him away from his research. Feeling she needs to help, Supergirl takes Foresight to the Fortress of Solitude to try to find a cure. There, the supercomputer tells her that they'll find one on Kandor from someone named Norcan. But Norcan is a dead Kryptonian, someone who was trying to research for a cure-all in the past. Linda, as Supergirl, takes Foresight inside Kandor, where Zor-El tells Supergirl that they need to head into the mountains to try to find Norcan's tomb. On Kandor, Supergirl has waning powers, but can still fly Foresight into the mountain range. En route, they're captured by a giant bird called a Satan Swallow, and brought to its nest for food. Luckily, inside the nest, Supergirl finds Norcan's yellow ring, which is able to concentrate the yellow sun rays from the outside, thus giving Supergirl her full power set inside. She fights off the giant bird. Then they head to Norcan's tomb, where Foresight grabs a vial that's inside the the scientist's glass casket. He drinks this cure-all, only to find that it leads to an unexpected side effect of gigantism. Foresight begins to grow inside the bottle to the point that he'll crush Candor. 
Supergirl, using her brains, flies out of candor on the microwave relay ray, and now outside and fully grown, uses her super breath to heat and expand the glass bottle so that the opening is big enough for her to snatch the growing professor. She then cools the body back to its original shape using her super breath and molding the molten glass. I'm pretty sure there would be a ton of natural consequences on the city if she tried to pull this off, but at the very least, Foresight is outside the bottle, and the bottle is back to normal. Cured of his ill, the professor restates his fight against sickle cell disease. Okay, almost too much happened in this story, from the underwater battle to the bird fight to the lucky Norcan finds. Alas, we also see that Linda actually cares about what that creep Jeff thought of her, a pattern that happens in all of these issues. I suppose it was okay that Bates was trying to inform kids about sickle cell anemia, but overall, this was a pretty weird story. Back to you, Ryan. Zatanna's backup from Supergirl issue 2 is called The Magic Piper. Once again, it's written by Len Wein and Marv Wolfman, but this time the art is provided by Don Heck. Now, before you think, ugh, Don Heck... Remember that Heck drew Zatanna's first backup story in an issue of The Flash that I covered back on episode 16, and that was a good story that Heck did a fine job on. Let's see how he does on this one. Zatanna and Jeff Sloan come across a group of boys throwing rocks and bottles at rats in a dilapidated, junky part of the city. According to them, the whole city is infested with rats. Zatanna casts a spell that makes the rats in the immediate vicinity vanish. Ridding the entire city of its rat problem, though, would take more magic than she can conjure, so she casts a different spell, one that sends her back through time. She arrives in Hamelin, Germany in the late 13th century, where the infamous Pied Piper of legend plays his flute, leading all of the rats out of the town and into the sea. Zatanna thinks it would be a great idea to bring the Pied Piper back into the 20th century with her and use his musical talents to end the modern rat infestation. Unfortunately, Zatanna might have forgotten the second part of the Pied Piper legend, because next we see the mayor reneging on his agreement to pay the Piper for exterminating the rodents. In retaliation, the Piper waits for all of the grown-ups of Hamelin to go to church, then lures all of the children of the village into a cave. Zatanna tries to use her magic to send the children back home, but the spell doesn't work. They enter the cave and, according to the legend, are never heard from again. The Pied Piper tells Zatanna that she can't alter history by saving the children, which seems like a perfectly logical plot point in a comic book with a time-traveling magician and a teenage girl who can fly and throw cars around. Ignoring the fact that the Pied Piper is going to kill, like, 130 children out of revenge for not getting paid the worth of his government contract, Zatanna asks the Piper to come with her to the future to take care of the 20th century's rat problem. He agrees, but when she casts the spell, it fails to transport him. Zatanna alone returns to the city street alongside Jeff, but just as the boys begin to despair, an exterminator van pulls up to the curb. The Exterminator bears a striking resemblance to the Pied Piper, for he is the descendant of the legendary figure Zatanna met centuries ago. Okay, first thing is there is nothing wrong with Don Heck's art in this story, which is very refreshing. His Zatanna looks fine. His Pied Piper looks, you know, garish and fashionable for Germany in the 1200s. The art is fine. It's not amazing, but it's just fine. The story, though... First, why can't Zatanna alter history? 
That is a ridiculous conceit in superhero comics. History gets rewritten all the time. Why would magic be limited that way? That makes no sense, and Ween and Wolfman should have known that makes no sense. Second, yeah, the Pied Piper was good at getting rid of rats according to a centuries-old fable. Know what else he was really good at? The mass murder of hundreds of children. That's who Zatanna tries to recruit? A guy who slaughters children en masse by either drowning them or leaving them in a dark cave to starve? What if he did come back to her time and saved the city from the rats, but then the city council was like, hey, you're from 700 years ago, you don't have a bank account, a birth certificate, any identification, how are we supposed to wire you the money? Would the Pied Piper just revert back to type and kidnap all of that city's children, including the ones that Zatanna and Jeff Sloan found, and just dump them in a river? In fact, given the exterminator we see at the end is implied to be the reincarnation of the original Pied Piper, we don't know for a fact that that isn't what happens at the end of the story. This whole story is a boggled, stupid mess to explain one line from Zatanna that doesn't make sense. She casts a spell, vanishing all of the rats she can see, and then says she's not powerful enough to do that to the whole city. Has she tried? Maybe do a block-by-block -block sweep. Maybe put a little more than two seconds worth of work before you give up and outsource your job to a child murderer. Just saying. Okay, that one was a big failure. Let's move on to Supergirl number three. Your turn, Ange. And we're back to Woot Woot Hot Pants in coverage of Supergirl number three, cover dated February 1973. Nothing shows the problems of Supergirl in the early 70s as clearly as this cover. On it, Supergirl is on her hands and knees weeping as she looks inside a house where a teen party is happening. A small kitten is beside her licking her hand. And Kara says, What's the good of being a Supergirl, helping everyone, if I can't even get a date? The title box says Supergirl uncovers the Garden of Death. This story by the creative team of Bates, Saf, and Coletta, opens with a moody splash page of Supergirl inside the city morgue, looking at a covered body and wondering how she'll be able to stop a perfect crime that is about to happen if she can't find any clues. We jump to the Delta Zan house, where Linda and her roommates are talking about their upcoming Valentine's Day dance and their dates. Linda's date Bob, however, stumbles on her performing Romeo and Juliet in class and assumes that Linda has true feelings for the actor playing Romeo. Bob says he isn't going to take any more and storms off breaking their date, and Linda was really hoping that he would really dig her. Do you see this pattern of men acting like pigs and Supergirl caring a little bit too much? It happens throughout the series. Romeo had a date with someone named Marianne, who canceled on him, too. But when she canceled, she was crying and very upset. As Supergirl, our hero decides to see if she can help Marianne. She flies to Marianne's apartment, where Marianne confesses that her father, the famous horticulturalist Albert Brooks, is being charged with murder because gangster Lucky Coin Lacey's dead body was found on his estate. Flying to the scene of the crime with Marianne, Supergirl is told by the cops to leave because, and I quote, this case is tighter than a dead man's fist stiffened in rigor mortis. In flashback, we see that people were walking on the famed Brooks Greenhouse estate and found a freshly buried casket. Inside was Lacey's body, a dagger covered in Brooks' fingerprints plunged into his chest. Looking about, Supergirl actually finds four more coffins on the ground, all containing dead mobsters. And it looks like Brooks is not only a killer, but a mass murderer. 
In the jail, Brooks tells Supergirl that he was on an expedition with a grad student named Vic Mason when the killing supposedly happened. Mason could exonerate him, but is missing. Heading off to where they were hiking, Supergirl spots Vic Mason and saves him from a giant Venus flytrap that was about to kill him. With Mason's alibi, Brooks is released, but who could have framed him? Here's where things take a crazy turn. It turns out that Lucky Coin Lacey is actually alive. He killed someone and had that body undergo plastic surgery to look exactly like him. Then Lacey has had plastic surgery to look like Brooks. With Brooks now innocent of the murders, Lacey can replace him and lead a new life as a mob boy that, that no one knows to look for. Just then, Supergirl flies in to save the day, stopping the real Brooks from being killed and replaced. Earlier, Supergirl had examined that corpse in the city morgue, and she realized it wasn't the real Lacey, because the hand that he always flipped his lucky coin in was unblemished, an impossibility for someone who had flipped a coin for decades. The real Lacey is arrested, and Marianne is reunited with her dad. Everyone is happy. Well, not everyone, because the story ends with Supergirl outside that Valentine's Day dance and looking inside forlornly. What good is it to be a hero if she can't go to the dance? All right, this is another wild story with another insanely complicated crime plot and another story that very easily could have been the Batgirl story. Take away the giant Venus flytrap, and there's really nothing super that happens. But there is no denying that Saf brings it here. The art is really stunning. Again, throughout these stories, they did anything they could to get Linda in either a bikini or a revealing outfit. All right, back to you, Ryan. Zatanna's backup in Supergirl number three welcomes a new writer to the character, longtime Flash scribe Carrie Bates. The art, once more, is by Don Heck. You know, I'm just now reminded of a meme that I saw a couple of weeks ago. God, it went something like, Heck is the place where people go who don't believe in gosh. Anyway, I thought that was kind of amusing. Anywho, the story called The Curse of the Phantom Heckler begins with Zatanna, that saucy sorceress we know and love, performing a magic show for kids at the Midville Orphanage, the same orphanage that cared for Supergirl's alter ego Linda Danvers when the Girl of Steel first arrived on Earth. In fact, it was Linda Danvers herself who wrote to Zatanna asking the saucy sorceress to perform at her sort of alma mater. During the show, Zatanna asked the kids what she might pull out of her magic top hat, eliciting responses such as a rabbit, some flowers, or a scarf. Zatanna then pulls out two more top hats from the original, and then proceeds to surprise the kids even further by drawing a rabbit from one hat, some flowers from the second, and a scarf from the third. This impressive feat is witnessed not only by the orphans, but by Mr. and Mrs. Barth, who run the orphanage, and they sure hope someone named Mickey is watching too. For Zatanna's next trick, she places a fishbowl with two live goldfish on a table. Then she casts the spell... Hesif Hesinav, intending for the fish to vanish. Instead, the fish tank shatters, sending water and glass all over the stage. The kids argue about whether Zatanna goofed her trick or if it was intended. Only Zatanna knows that it most assuredly was not what she intended. To get everything back on track, she hurries into another trick. She tosses a deck of cards into the air, letting them fall haphazardly onto the floor. 
Waving her wand at the cards, she intends for the cards to spell out her name when they land. Instead, the cards spell out the word HELP. The saucy sorceress tries to continue the show, but every trick goes wrong until the orphans are booing and hissing and mocking the so-called magician. Do you know how bad you've got to screw up to make orphans think they've been ripped off? Only two of the kids hold to their faith in Zatanna. Sissy and Neil run backstage to find Zatanna in distress, claiming that someone named Mickey is trying to contact her psychically. Sissy explains that Mickey was the first orphan the Barths took in, but that he was killed five years ago when a truck ran him down. Assuming that Mickey's ghost had been messing with her performance, Zatanna figures the boy's reason had to be to send a message. Once more, she tosses the cards into the air, letting the ghost determine how they land. On the floor, the cards spell out, The Barths. Putting the names with the original message help, Zatanna and the orphans realize Mr. and Mrs. Barth are in danger. And indeed they are, because they were supposed to testify against a gangster named Big Max Fenton. One of Fenton's enforcers has the Barths tied up below the stage. He's about to electrocute them with a cable when Zatanna comes to the rescue, casting the ingenious spell, Bumerk Kank Flesroy Twel. The crumb knocks himself out. Zatanna and the orphans untie the Barths, who thank the Mistress of Magic. Zatanna tells them to thank Mickey, you know, the dead boy who was like a son to them. Okay, my first note is Zatanna is once again referred to in caption as the saucy sorceress. That's not even me adding that. Carrie Bates wrote that. And it's wonderful. It's nice to see more of Zatanna's act. I mean, I love it when magicians perform for kids. I don't know why. That's just a trope that I really enjoy. I don't, I don't think I ever saw a magician when I was a child. And that's probably why I'm such a gruff and cynical person, as you can no doubt tell from my podcasts. Uh, the dramatic shift at the end when the Barths are going to be murdered by a gangster's hitman to keep them from testifying in court is odd, uh, because we've had no indication up to this point that that was a thing, unless uh, maybe it was covered in a Supergirl story. But even though it comes out of nowhere, it is all worth it to get Zatanna's final spell. She tells the killer, knock yourself out, backwards, and he punches himself into unconsciousness. It is so good. Up to this point, I've covered over 20 stories with Zatanna on this podcast, and I've read her say countless spells, but so far, not one of them has been better than Kank Flesroy Tuo. All right, we got one more issue to cover on this episode. Let's send it back to Dr. Ange one more time. What's up with Supergirl? All right. Everyone settle down for the last installment of Who Lordy? I See Hot Pants as I cover Supergirl number four, cover dated March 1973. On this cover, we see a sort of composite Supergirl. The right side of her body is normal, but the left side has a robotic appearing face and a monstrous appearing hand. Supergirl says, I've just created a monster myself, and I'm as unbeatable as you. The text box says Supergirl becomes her own worst enemy in The Borrowed Brain. Now that's a cue for you, Ryan, to end this episode with My Own Worst Enemy by Lit. Of note, though, be aware, this scene does not happen in the issue. 
The Borrowed Brain is again by Bates, Saf, and Coletta. The splash page has Supergirl in a battle in the skies with an unseen man in a garish yellow and magenta costume. He's holding a huge bag of cash in a bag marked Midvale Bank and is holding up the metal mask he was wearing as he gloats, admitted Supergirl, now that you know who I am, there's no way you can fight me. She thinks to herself, it's true, how can I battle him when he's part of me? The story opens with Linda at a college pool party in a yellow bikini and a patterned oversized coverall. She flirts with David, a post-grad criminal sociology student. They hit it off right away. But their musings with each other is interrupted by an earthquake which strikes. Linda runs off to help his Supergirl, and it's while she is away that we see that David is plotting some major crime with a couple of hoods, a crime which has been derailed a bit by the quake. Away from the party, Supergirl sees that the earthquake was started when a massive red-hot meteor struck the grounds and is burning into the Earth's mantle. Using her super breath, she freezes it and then smashes it, ending the earthquake. Back at the pool party, David gloats about his cover as a student at Van Dyer University. He sees Linda's roommate, Terry, about to dive into the pool, but the earthquake has made a huge shard of the pool floor stick up. David won't let Terry impale herself, so he actually does the heroic thing, diving in and stopping her. But he hits his head, suffering brain damage. Back at the hospital where he's brought, the doctor bluntly says he'll waste away as a mindless vegetable. Hey, that's nice bedside manner there, Doc. Supergirl won't hear it, though. She loves David. So she has tools beamed out of candor so she can do a brain cell transplant, sending some of her brain cells into his mind to cure him. Uh, okay, I guess that makes sense. Within seconds, David is up and about. He immediately heads back to campus to woo Linda. He hopes that she will provide him an alibi as a normal student and not the criminal mastermind he is. And he realizes that he doesn't need his crew anymore because Supergirl's brain cells has given him all of her superpowers. He makes a costume with a lead mask and becomes the Super Scavenger. He flies off to the bank where he thwarts his old gang from doing an ongoing robbery and grabs two enormous bags of cash and flies off. Supergirl arrives, and while David's face is shielded with the lead mask, she recognizes his watch and realizes that the man she is fighting is her David, the man that she pines for. Luckily, in mid-battle, his powers fade. Turns out that her brain cells only charged him for a short time. He plummets from the sky to his death. And for a split second, we actually see Supergirl debate what she should do before rushing to save him. Hmm, I guess there is that saying about a woman scorned. As she flies David to jail, he puts the moves on her, saying that part of her is still inside him and they could have a beautiful life together. But Supergirl feels jilted. After all, she wants David to love her as Linda. Later, turned off by all men, Linda refuses to go to the go-go disco with her friends, instead deciding she's going to take some time off from dating. All right, so these four stories have something of a running pattern. A lovesick Supergirl, looking for a boyfriend, and having them all turn out to be jerks. And this makes her very sad. We also see that in each of these stories, Carrie Bates super stuffs a bunch of crazy scenes and plot twists, all in the constraints of a 17-page story. Now, I like that Bates tried to make this a socially diverse book. Here in this issue, we meet Sabra, an Israeli student, a new cast member. 
but overall these plots are pretty daffy. It's really the beautiful art by Art Saf that saves these issues. And thankfully, this halter top and hot pants costume sticks around for another decade or so. And that's the end of my segments. Thanks for inviting me to join you on Power of Fishnets, Ryan. I hope I held up my end of the bargain and reviewed these issues the way they should be. Final Satana backup story in this run is called The Rock of Revenge, and it's by the same creative team of Carrie Bates and Don Heck. One sunny day, Zatanna is walking through the park when she sees a family sitting at a picnic table completely upside down. Yeah, the people and the table are floating in the air upside down. For some reason, Zatanna thinks that's weird and casts a spell to put them back to the ground right side up. The saucy sorceress, I swear it says that on page 2, continues to walk through the park, suspicious that someone else in the area is casting magic spells. She comes across a glowing sword protruding from a rock. Logically, she knows this can't be the fabled Excalibur of Arthurian legend, but then again, it might be. So she reaches out and touches it. Bad idea. Don't reach out and touch things you don't understand, Zatanna. It didn't work for Al Franken, and it's not going to work for you. Too late, the sword vanishes, and Zatanna is trapped in its place, her body half-trapped in the stone. From out of the nearby trees emerges the garish Murba the Sorcerer, a man who claims to be a descendant from the legendary Merlin. Murba tells Zatanna that only the magic of Merlin can undo the spell that has her trapped. Then he runs off to cause some other mischief, like maybe turning a bank teller upside down, or a fry cook. Zatanna uses her magic to summon a giant hand from the clouds, but it cannot free her from the stone. She tries conjuring mystic sledgehammers, jackhammers, picks, all manner of things to break the stone and free herself, but time and again, she fails. Realizing she's stuck like a living sword in the stone, Zatanna is struck by an idea. She casts a spell creating an astral duplicate of herself. This duplicate then scans the faces and identities of every living person on the face of the planet until she finds the last living descendant of King Arthur, which happens to be an infant boy in southeastern Wales. The astral Zatanna grabs the baby Arthur, disappearing him in front of his astonished parents. Astral Zatanna carries the baby across the sea to the park where Zatanna is trapped. The infant tugs on Zatanna's hair, which has the desired effect of pulling her out of the stone, just like Arthur's ancestor pulled the sword out ages ago. Now free, Zatanna is of a mind to get back to that pesky Merba, but instead does the responsible thing of bringing the infant back to his grieving parents in Wales. The story ends with Zatanna helping the parents celebrate Lul Arthur's birthday with some magic tricks and festivities. Okay. I just want to mention that Zatanna casts an astral projection of herself that transverses the entire planet and reads the genetic identities of every human being. This is the same Zatanna that couldn't disappear all the rats in New York a couple of issues ago. Also, what the hell, Zatanna? Don't go grabbing strange swords you find in the woods. You of all people should know that's a no-no. Murba might as well have hung a neon sign above the rock saying, Cursed Object Here. And Murba? 
Boy, he looks dumb. Sorry, but I've got nothing good to say about him or his design, and I'm a guy that loves Signal Man unironically. But Murba's costume is bad, his gimmick, Descendant of Merlin, is uninspiring, and his name, Murba? That's dumb. Bates left the story open for him to come back as a recurring magical villain for Zatanna, which she badly needed at this point, but I don't think we ever see him again, and I don't miss him. I have a nasty habit of ending these episodes with the worst story, but that's just the way this one goes. This was the weakest of the four stories, which might explain why she didn't get backups in issues 5 and beyond. Overall, the Zatanna features in these four issues of Supergirl are fine, not bad at all, but not amazing. They definitely lean closer to her unimpressive done-in-one story from Adventure Comics 421, rather than the engrossing multi-part saga from issues 413 through 415. Too bad, because maybe with more meaty stories under her belt, Zatanna would have gotten her own comic, or series. Instead, before long, she would fade into obscurity for a couple of years. But that is something that we will address the next episode. For now, I'm going to take another promo break when I return your listener feedback from episode 24. Don't go away. After the theatrical cartoons, after the movie serials, a new medium helped define an icon for generations to come. The Adventures of Superman. Join Mike Zumo as the Man of Screen podcast enters the next phase with a year-long look at the 1950s television series The Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves as Clark Kent and Superman. No comment until the time limit is up. Phyllis Coates as Lois Lane during Season 1. What are you afraid of? What are you hiding? And Noel Neal as Lois Lane starting in Season 2. Why did you wait? Jack Larson as Jimmy Olsen. Mr. Kent is Superman. John Hamilton as Perry White. Don't call me Chief! And Robert Shane as Inspector Henderson. I don't want excuses, I want action. So, follow along Mike and some possible guest hosts for an in-depth analysis of The Adventures of Superman, starting in June at supermanpodcastnetwork.com and manofscreen.podomatic.com. This is a job for Superman. I mean, I've got to find it. Back on episode 24, I reviewed Justice League of America issues 100 through 102, which featured the League teaming up with the Justice Society and the Seven Soldiers of Victory. I also shared the indie comic Tough Girl that I discovered at Heroes Con. The first comment came from Chuck Coletta, who said he was looking forward to listening to the episode during his drive to work. That was three weeks ago, I think, and we haven't heard from him since, so... Chuck, I hope you survived. Um, He also posted a link to the Young Justice podcast, Whelmed, who dropped a Zatanna-centric episode the same day that I released the last show. Rob Kelly, he of many podcasts here on the Fire & Water Network, said, Teehee, you said titular. Damn right I did. Then Rob said, I've always thought the Golden Age Aquaman would have been a great member of the Seven Soldiers of Victory. He seemed to fit more of the B-team that populated that group. I've only read a handful of their stories, but I've enjoyed them. They have a different vibe than the JSA Adventures. And yes, I guess this story doesn't hold up to a lot of scrutiny. I still enjoy it because it is so much fun. So many characters, time travel, etc., and ready, go, boom. Yeah, ready, go, boom, indeed. Uh, As for the other thing, I think the yellow-gloved Earth-2 Aquaman would have been great on the Seven Soldiers of Victory. I probably would have picked him over Crimson Avenger, since I don't like the superhero costume Phantom ripoff version of the Avenger. I much prefer the Domino Mask and Fedora Green Hornet ripoff version. 
Uh, Chris Franklin, likewise of many shows here on the network, said, Thanks for deconstructing a classic JLA tale to the point where now I can only see the flaws. You know, I considered not even covering the story from the last episode or doing a very abbreviated mention of Zatanna and Black Canary's parts in the story. I knew my friends probably like these stories, and I, I just did not. I usually have to be in a certain mindset for Bronze Age Justice League stories anyway. I can get there pretty easily when I want to, but with everybody talking about the movie, I just couldn't get excited about those issues. Chris goes on, The Seven Soldiers have always held some strange fascination for me. I think it's because I didn't really know them until reading them in the classic DC Comics Presents Whatever Happened to the Crimson Avenger story, and then in All-Star Squadron. I've read a few of their Golden Age stories in JLA 100-page Giants, and oddly enough, the art in those was often superior to many segments of JSA stories. Go figure. Uh, Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl asked, How can you criticize Johnny Thunder? It says right there in 102, he's the incomparable Johnny Thunder. Yeah. The mystery that wasn't solved was, where the heck did Johnny's trademark bow tie go? Were they afraid the colorist might mistake him for Jimmy Olsen and color him accordingly? I didn't even notice the bow tie was missing, Martin. Probably because I never look at the character or think about him that hard. Uh, Martin said, I disagree you had to be a fan of both Dual Earth team-ups and the Seven Soldiers of Victory to enjoy these issues. I'd never heard of the team when I bought these issues as a kid. That was part of the excitement. A team that was brand new to me meeting two favorite groups with many missions to the past. He then asks, so what's up with your preference for the sinister-sounding triad over trio, huh, huh? Every time you use the term, I did an audio double-take. Remember when Triplicate Girl was renamed Triad? It just sounded wrong. I, I don't remember that. I don't think I ever knew that she was called Triad. I'm going to assume that that was like during the 90s period, whenever, when they were on Earth, and they got all new names that didn't include boy or girl or lad or lass in them, which to me takes away a lot of the fun and charm about the Legion. So even though I don't know for sure that that is what you're talking about, I agree that it does sound wrong. Uh, speaking of sounding wrong, Ted Kilvington said, One of the first comics I ever bought around my ninth birthday was Super Friends number 8, where the Red Tornado was featured prominently. So I've always had a soft spot for the character, and I always enjoyed seeing regular schmoes on super teams. So I also have soft spots for Johnny Thunder and Snapper Carr. Yes, I'm a nerd among nerds. Well, I guess the important thing is you know that and you live with it. Mark Baker Wright said, Recognizing the host's hatred of Johnny Thunder, I'm hesitant to ask this question that has been on my mind for years, but I'm not sure where I'll have a better venue to ask folks who might know. In the Golden Age stories, I get the impression that Johnny Thunder is unaware that the words say you are the words that summon the Thunderbolt. But by the time of the Silver Age stories, such as this one, he seems fully aware of this fact. Was there ever a story in which Johnny actually figured this out, or is this simply something that must have happened in the interim between his Golden and Silver Age appearances? Um, I don't have an exact answer of when it happened, but I know it predates the Silver Age, because um, I've, I've only read like maybe six Johnny Thunder stories. I've read his first appearance, which was in the Flash Comics number one, and I covered that on the Secret Origins podcast. And you're right, Mark, in that story, Johnny did not know that his catchphrase, say you, summoned the magical thunderbolt or the magical power because it really didn't take the form of a genie at first. Uh, he didn't know that. But 
by the time Black Canary started showing up in Johnny Thunder strips, which were like issues 86 and then some issues in the 90s, um, and those were published in 1947-48-ish, by that time he definitely did know that Say You was the magic catchphrase. So it, it, I'm assuming that it did happen in a story or just one day, maybe not. Maybe one day they just said, yeah, he, he knows, he figures it out. It happens at some point in the 1940s between Flash number one and Flash 86. I can't give you a more specific thing than that, but it was definitely a golden age thing where he figured it out. Sorry, that's the best I can do. Uh, and finally, David Ace Gutierrez said, so Johnny Thunder can't sing my favorite Lionel Richie song? I'm, I'm not sure I get it. Why would Johnny have trouble singing Dancing on the Ceiling? Okay, that is going to be all for this episode of Power of Fishnets. What comes next? Well, if you can believe it, Zatanna only has four more appearances in her classic tuxedo and fishnet costume before she joined the Justice League and changed clothes. Four more appearances, and I'm going to blast through them all on the next episode. It will begin with a short story from Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. Then, Zatanna actually teams up with Supergirl in Supergirl issue 7. And for that story, I will team up with Ange. Yes, we will actually record together. Then, a backup Green Arrow story from Action Comics featuring both Zatanna and Black Canary. And finally, two single-panel cameo appearances in a random Justice League issue. That is what we're going to do on the next show. All of Zatanna's episodes of this podcast have been building to this, and I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to it. Talk to you then. Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Everybody starts to lose control when the